from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. On March 10th, 1957, rising waters on the lower Columbia River submerged a fishing village centered around the culturally and economically rich area of Celilo Falls. This waterfall was one of the largest in North America and for hundreds of years served as the center of trade routes and a thriving salmon fishing operation. The flood submerged Celilo Falls, forcing many of the former residents to leave the area altogether, while others tried to rebuild their community on the banks of the newly created Celilo Lake. However, the inundation of Celilo Falls and the displacement of the Native American fishing community was not a natural disaster, but a fully anticipated result of the federal government's completion of the Dales Hydroelectric Dam. In the decades that followed, tensions over fishing rights increased, leading to the fish wars of the 1960s and the salmon scam of 1982. Today, we are joined by two Portland State University master's students of history who are researching two of the Native American leaders who resisted these federal impositions upon their cultural and economic livelihoods along the Columbia River. David Paul Hedberg is an environmental historian currently finishing his master's degree. He's author of From Stump Down to Tree Down, a field guide for interpreting Portland's history through its heritage trees. And at the 2015 Western History Association Conference, David presented a paper entitled, May the Supreme Being Help Us Both in This Grave Cause of Ours, Wilson Charlie's Vision of Yakima Conservation on the Post-War Columbia River. Today, David shares with us his insight into Wilson Charlie's efforts to stop construction on the Dales Dam in the 1950s. Also joining us is Joshua Ross, second-year graduate student focusing on Native history and public history. He's currently working on his thesis on Native resource rights along the Columbia River, specifically looking at David Sohappy, senior, and the government's case against him during the Salmon Scam. Let's start off by speaking with David Hedberg about his research on the Dales Dam and Wilson Charlie. Welcome, David. Hi, thanks for letting me come in today. Can you begin by telling us about the Celilo Falls, describing what they're like and where they were? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Celilo Falls is really kind of a, an anchor place um, in, in Native culture in the Northwest. It's actually, it's, it's kind of the oldest continuously occupied site in, in, the, in Oregon, and probably one of the oldest continuously inhabited sites in North America. It sits along the middle Columbia River, just outside the Dalles. And this was like a, a place where um, a series of basalt outcrops kind of created these extensive waterfalls. And we, we often talk about Celilo, but it's also really important to note that this place was a series of places. So Celilo Falls was probably the epicenter of Indian fishing in the region. But there were other spots along the Long Narrows and ma- many, many fishing sites within this reach um, that the Dallas Dam flooded. So why was this area so culturally and socially significant to the Yakima people? An important distinction I I just want to clarify right here is that they were important to the Yakima people, but they were also important to many of the other tribes in the area. Um, So the Yakima had a long 
uh, a long claim to fishing at, along the river there. Um, but the Warm Springs and the Umatilla and the Nez Perce and many other non-recognized tribes by the federal government also had rights there too. This was a place where uh, individual families really owned their own stations, places to fish. Um, and those And those sites could be inherited and passed down through generations. And so this was really a place where families owned and controlled property um, and access to fishing. And tribes and people from all over the, the, the West, um, as far as the Rocky Mountains, would come to trade and fish and exchange culture. There were many political alliances. Um, marriages were brokered, trade relationships. It was a, really, it was a center of, of, of politics as well as economics, too. Um, and that's really what gave it, gave it its, its significance. In our intro, we mentioned the dam, um, that, and you did as well, the Dallas Dam, the hydroelectric dam. And we want to play a bit of an archival clip that uh, is from the U.S. Department of Interior, Interior, and it's simply called Hydro. America's conquest of the Columbia has begun. An unshackled giant becomes a seaway to an empire. The promise of power for every corner of the Northwest. Power to uncover a treasure trove of idle resources. To turn them into useful goods for which a nation waits. Power for millions of Americans who look westward hopefully. For land and jobs. For security and happiness. Power to make the American dream come true. Well, that's quite the claim. Do you want to maybe give us some context for that, David? Sure. Um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric around boosterism and, and this idea of this word progress um, that comes out of the post-war era. And I think in, in the big picture, uh, a lot of Americans were really drunk on this idea of progress. Um, they wanted to see electrification and, and conquering nature, and it very much was this uh, idea of conquest. But for some of these local indigenous people living on the river, they saw that idea of progress is actually a, a step backwards. In, in 100 years earlier, in 1855, they had secured a treaty um, that had reserved them the right to fish at these places along the Columbia River. Um, and that's, it's really important to, to note here that they reserved those rights. They were never granted those rights. They retained them themselves. Um, and so they had established a treaty that had ensured that they would continue to fish at this place. Um, and so when the Dalles Dam went in, that, I, that narrative of progress and conquest um, was very much a direct threat um, and an affront to their sovereignty um, and those rights that they had secured. So it, it very much did the opposite for them. So with the Dalles Dam being completed in 1957, that effectively wiped out the town of Celilo as well as those other important things you just described. So... When did the plans for the dam begin, and how does that fit in with the government's regional electrification plan? That's, yeah, um, it, it's important to kind of remember that the entire Columbia River, um, as early as, you know, in, in the 19, beginning in the 1930s, is kind of envisioned as um, what, what historian Richard White calls an organic machine. Um, they wanted to turn this entire river into a hydroelectric system. Multiple dams all the way up into Canada... Um, and kind of harness this power that engineers viewed as being wasted and flowing out to the river, unharnessed. So the Dalles Dam was kind of one cog in that organic machine. 
brings me to the question in your your paper for the conference you you, you compare the different um, responses by the conservationists um, and the Native American communities to proposed dams along the Snake River as well mm-hmm. and 18 I think other dams were built in the Northwest during the 30s to the 70s and I'm wondering what did you find in those two approaches and did they did they oppose dam construction outright everywhere on the Columbia or was 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 it just specific dams mm-hmm. well it, it's the, the man that I'm researching Wilson Charlie um, was a Yakima tribal councilman and he um, openly would request that they just move the Dalles Dam upriver um, move it if you moved it 12 miles upriver um, you'd keep Celilo Falls he wasn't opposed to dams um, in fact he supported some dams on the Snake River because he thought maybe that by building dams elsewhere we could um, we wouldn't need this dam at the Dalles and it, it, it was it was worth maybe building something somewhere else to protect this place and in that process he kind of he started seeing that there were people across the United States opposing dams. So it wasn't inevitable. Although the, the U.S. Energy Department, uh, the Bureau, um, the, the Interior Department, and the Corps of Engineers kind of all promoted this idea that building this, this organic machine of the Columbia River was an inevitable outcome. Um, and that, it, you know, the Indian people just needed to get with the program. But he frequently would point out that in Echo Park on the Colorado River, for example, uh, conservationists were opposing building a dam there. And in the Snake River, the Snake River High Dam was a huge political controversy and, and made headline news for, for about a decade. Um, so he was really cued into what other groups throughout the country were doing to resist dams. So that sort of leads to this next question. How did the outlook of the Native American community and environmental conservationists differ? Yeah, that's that's a really that's kind of one of the the key issues that I try to I'm trying to address in my thesis. I see a, a, a large contingent of people that we call conservationists in the '50s. You know, that's what they called themselves. Today, we think of them as environmentalists. They didn't have that term at that yeah, point. Yeah, I suppose I use them interchangeably. When yeah, I, when well, I should in that, it, I think yeah. it's fine to use it interchangeably sure. as long as we understand that. Thanks for making that distinction. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, and I, I think one of the things that conservationists were really interested in was promoting this idea of a non-human, pristine nature. So they saw places like the Colorado River, and they erroneously viewed them as void of humans and worth preserving for their you know pure natural aesthetics. So when they saw places like Celilo Falls, which were bustling with activity, and Native American you know fishermen who had for generations been adapting and modernizing they saw this as you know not natural and therefore not worth preserving so this this idea of what what is worth preserving in the general sense of the american conservationist um, really conflicted with what wilson charlie was was trying to preserve which was a, a very an adaptable culturally important place at celilo falls so wilson charlie the leader that you're looking at and reading, from what I understand, you're reading his correspondences, and that's how you're getting to know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what how that experience has been, like reading letters of somebody over years to mm-hmm. different people, and obviously you never met him, you don't know him, but you're getting to know him through these letters. I'm, I wonder if you could describe his personality or him sure. to us now. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating to learn about someone just through their letters. You kind of feel like you're the fly on the wall. 
So I, I, I look at a lot of his letters between him and his friend. His name was James James, and he kind of worked as Wilson Charlie's press agent, uh, and he was centered here in Portland, Oregon. And they wrote letters to President Eisenhower, um, the League of Women Voters, you know, Nature Magazine, the Wilderness Society, all kinds of people to ask them to, for help. And so uh, there's a lot of just tracing who's writing to who and what what gets published and what doesn't get published and kind of the, the nuts and bolts. But also in those letters, there are all these like uh, really rich details. So I get to see their friendship, this friendship between Wilson Charlie and James James develop. He Wilson Charlie invites Jimmy James up uh, around Mount Adams for the Huckleberry Festival. Or they meet together in Portland at a coffee shop. Um, and they are writing back and forth about, you know, which coffee shop has better coffee. There's all these little things um, that are kind of embedded in that. And, and the really fascinating thing that I note is that Charlie's moving all around the country. He's taking trips to Washington, D.C. to testify before the Senate. Or he's back on the river fishing. And then the next week... He's up in Tacoma meeting with some, you know, some other indigenous allies. And then he's back in Salem to meet with a local politician. Mm -hmm. So he's moving all around. And in the midst of resisting the Dalles Dam, he's on the river and fishing for every run, you know, for the fall run and the spring run. Mm -hmm. So he's really a fisherman, but he's also a, a political leader, too. So from reading those letters and perhaps in other research, too, are you able to get an idea of what Wilson Charlie thought was at stake in this fight? Yeah, I mean, very much his concerns center on uh, protecting the 1855 treaty and those those reserved rights that the Yakima, um, he was enrolled with the Yakima tribe. Um, and so he was very much centered on protecting the Yakima's stake in that treaty. Um, but he, he would work with other um, river families other fishermen from other tribes, too, uh, who all kind of shared that treaty with that same language. Um, so that was like one of the biggest things he saw at stake. Another, another thing that was happening at that time was this policy in the federal government, which we now call the termination policy. It was passed in the early 50s, and it effectively um, it tried to sever the, the relationship between the federal government and Indian tribes and turn the jurisdiction over things like fishing rights over to the states. So Charlie was really concerned about how the state would interfere with with the treaty rights, um, which had long been kind of dealt with between the federal government and and the Yakima Nation. So in that period, there was there's a lot going on. It's not only resisting the dam, but it's also resisting the incursion of the state into the affairs of the tribe. So there, there was a lot at stake. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to get to uh, in your paper, you write that the non-native conservationists had just as much to do with the destruction of Salilo Falls as the politicians, the planners, and the engineers, as you said, that were encroaching mm-hmm. on the the rights to fish. Tell us more about how this is true. Yeah, and that's I might be overstepping a little bit there, um, but I, I I did that kind of intentionally. Because I think it's really worth noting um, that the, the letters of Wilson Charlie kind of show for perhaps the first time um, that the environmentalist conservationist community knew the concerns of Indians. Um, they knew that what was at stake. They knew 
how significant this site was to the Native American community. And they, they were getting letters asking for help from them. And for whatever reason, they chose not to help them. Um, so in that, I'm kind of, there, there's a bit of, uh, I, I, I can point the finger a little bit at them. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I, I think it is going too far to say that they had as much to do, mm-hmm. but they did have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it, it's an important lesson in history that we, you know, we're faced with choices. And when Wilson Charlie was writing to these conservationists, they were equipped with all the all the tools to make a decision to support the Yakima, um, and they decided not to for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the basis for that um, that pretty bold statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me, who benefited the most from the Dales Dam, and maybe a little bit about what the economic impacts for the Yakima people were? Yeah. And this is another thing that's really powerful about Charlie's letters because after the dam um, goes online and the Celilo Falls is flooded, um, he tries his hardest to continue fishing. But it really is a, it's, it's an emotional trauma. And uh, the Yakima scholar, uh, Michelle Jacobs, calls this a soul wound. Um, and I think that's a very apt description. He's, his soul is wounded so badly that he really has trouble going out and fishing from a boat. And so he ends up going out and trying to work and trying to earn a living in this new, this capitalist cash economy. And the only work he can find um, is as, as a farm laborer. Um, his small little shack on the Yakima reservation doesn't get electricity. You know, eventually the Corps of Engineers gives, um, agrees to pay out the tribe in a lump sum. Um, but they're, then they're fighting, trying to, you know, prevent the federal government from taxing them mm. uh, for that. So there's this long struggle to get the compensation. And Wilson Charlie had always maintained that they should not get a lump sum. They should get uh, the profits from, you know, a percentage of the electricity generated from the dam. Mm. And that would, you know, if they did that, he rationalized that they could create their own economy. They could create their own educational programs. They could do lots with you know, out of the worst situation, they could make it better. Mm-hmm. But effectively, the way the way the cards were dealt to them, um, they got this one this lump sum payment, and they saw very little benefit from that dam going in, and an enormous emotional trauma. Where where did the inhabitants of the area go? The Salilo Falls. Um, you mentioned that Wilson Charlie tried lived um, on the water still, but what happened mm-hmm. to the majority of the other folks? Yeah, so um, Wilson Charlie's ancestral site um, is this place called the Lone Pine Indian Camp. And it's just, it's right actually in front of the Dallas Dam. So it's not flooded. Although, ironically, he sits there fishing and watching the dam get built. Um, But many, many families were displaced. And he worked, along with uh, many of the other tribes, to get some of those families at Salilo Village uh, relocated. And they, and and they were somewhat successful in building, um, you know, the current Salilo Village. So if you're driving on I-84, you you can still, you, you'll see Salilo Village. It's been moved to the other side of the freeway. Mm-hmm. So some of the families were relocated, but a lot of them went to the reservations or continued to live off the reservation in in what another historian, Andrew Fisher, calls uh they were, they were like the shadow tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, these river people that kind of stayed on the river and they kind of, you know, we're hiding in the shadows of the Columbia Gorge. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. That yeah. actually, I want to reintroduce Joshua Ross. Um, I feel like that's a, a good transition for us to bring in his focus of study, which is on David So Happy and what was called the Salmon Scam of 1982. So, Joshua, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Great. So, to begin, um, please tell us what happened on June 17th, 1982, in a place called Cook's Landing, Washington. Yeah, uh, Cook's Landing is in between the Dalles Dam and uh, the McNary Dam. Uh, McNary or, or John Day, I forget it right offhand, but anyways, it was a small native fishing village. Um, the village itself was what was called an in-lieu site. Um, there are a number of sites that the Corps of Engineers, Army Corps of Engineers, promised to build in compensation for the construction of the Bonneville Dam in 1933. And from reading Dave's uh, paper, Lone Pine is another one of these in-lieu sites. So they pro- the Corps of Engineers promised these sites as sites that Native people could continue to fish in. And this was something that they declined to do when they built the Dalles Dam and destroyed Salilo Village, um, deciding to offer instead a lump sum payment. So Native people, uh, fishers along the Columbia River, uh, set up villages at these sites, and Cook's Landing was one of them. So on June 17, 1982, um, state and federal agents raided the village at Cook's Landing, and they claimed there was a massive Indian poaching ring being operated out of the village. This was conducted by the National Marines Fisheries Service uh, in cooperation with the Fish and Wildlife uh, State of Oregon and Washington. And when the National Marines Fisheries Service released a press release announcing the sting operation, which went for like 14 months, Um, Their press release in 1981 announcing it claimed that their their service had found that there were about 40,000 adult fall Chinook that were unaccounted for between the Bonneville and McNary dams. And they strongly implied that this loss was the result of illegal Indian fishing. And so they conducted this raid on June 17th. And out of it, they indicted about 70 people on federal charges of violating the uh, Lacey Act, which, and this is one of these funny things that this whole episode, the Lacey Act was a, uh, a early, early conservation law passed in 1900 um, that was amended in 1980 while the sting operation was going on to make violation of state, federal, and tribal fishing laws a federal offense. And so these 70 people were indicted on on felony charges for fishing out of season. This obviously was not the first incident. You know, there's been these tensions between the state and tribes over fishing rights. Um, and I think there's several high-profile actions in the late 60s and 70s. So how did the Cook's Landing incident differ from these earlier episodes? Yeah, and, and that, that's kind of the main 
motivation for my research as I was uh, what I have completed was a term paper from last spring and as I was researching this um, it just kind of the, the difference between the the trials and and the, the controversies in the 60s and 70s and and the in the 80s kind of stood out and David so happy senior was a key figure in these earlier fishing fights and one of the first major major victories for uh tribal treaty fishing rights was a court decision by uh, Judge Robert Baloney in 1968 in a case in which David So Happy, his nephew uh, Richard, and 12 other uh, Native fishers sued the state of uh, sued the state of Oregon, excuse me, um, for violating their treaty fishing rights. And in 1968, uh, Judge Baloney ruled in favor of the native litigants and ruled that uh, the state of the state of Oregon could not interfere with tribal fishing um, that they had no jurisdiction over tribal fishing except in cases where conservation measures were necessary and so in 1968, they initially got arrested in 67. So in 67 here, David So Happy, his nephew, and others get arrested and thrown in jail for violating fishing laws and win this major victory for treaty fishing rights. And then in 1982, they're busted for doing the same thing. And they wind up, David So Happy, his son, and and uh, I think, yeah, one other person got five years in federal penitentiary mm-hmm. f- for doing the same thing. I thought reading your paper, um, I think it's just worth stating how much was the actual value? I don't know if you have the exact number, but of the fish that he was convicted of for five years. Yeah. So when, so I already mentioned in this press release, the National Marines Fisheries Service claimed that 40,000 fish had gone missing they couldn't account for and strongly implied it was native fishing that um, that was the cause. Um, The prosecution, the federal prosecution claimed that out of this whole investigation there was like Mm -hmm. $150,000 had been illegally sold. In the end, and they also charged uh, David So Happy with uh, conspiracy to violate this um, uh, act. To violate a, a, a tribal regulation, uh, nobody was convicted on the conspiracy charges. Um, David So Happy was convicted for selling a total of three hundred some fish. He was mm-hmm. convicted for the sale of one hundred seventy eight fish for about five thousand dollars, and then received five year probation for the sale of an additional 139 fish. His son, David So Happy Jr., also received the maximum uh, uh, penalty or uh, maximum uh, sentence for violating the Lacey Act, also received five years. He was only convicted of selling 28 fish for 300-some dollars. And this is over the course of 14 uh, 14 14 months. months. Yeah, Um, I think those details speak volumes regarding... Uh, their investigation. So the 
this 40,000 Chinook that were unaccounted for, do you think using that figure and having it factor so, uh, I guess, so thoroughly into the case, was that maybe an appeal by the government to get conservationists on their side? Or was it maybe to push a harsher sentence because they could point to you've caused this much damage? Maybe I'm off base here. Um, no. Um, for I totally answer that, um, this was called and ended up being called the salmon scam. Generated a lot of controversy, and eventually, there are senators from Washington and and Hawaii and and, and other high profile people intervened to get the sentence reduced and to get a fair trial. And these senators were concerned about what they called the possible racial misuse of the Lacey Act. And that's kind of how I understand this 40,000 missing fish number. Um, as I mentioned before, there are major uh, court victories for treaty rights in the 60s and 70s. There was the Bologna decision in 1968, which led to the Bolt decision in 1974, which was an even bigger victory. In that decision, in a case brought by the United States against the state of Washington on behalf of Northwest tribes, uh, Judge Bologna went, f or Judge Bolt went farther than Bologna and ruled that uh, the treaty tribes in the Northwest were entitled to 50% of the catchable fish for any given season, which in the time when the salmon runs were collapsing due to the you know pollution and then of course dams really inflamed tensions racial tensions between non-native fishers and and native fishers mm -hmm. and their high profile kind of counter demonstrations by white fishermen against this ruling and so my understanding of this announcement of, well, we don't know where these 40,000 fish went, we think it was the Indians, was kind of an attempt to try the, the case in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. They're drawing on these racial tensions and prejudices of the non-native non fishers to kind of drive this, to kind of poison the well, I suppose. And the, the salmon scam trials actually happened in California. The, the uh, venue had to be moved because the judge in Washington ruled that they couldn't get a fair trial. Mm. After the Bolt decision, after all these controversies, they called it the fishing wars, uh, these Indian fishermen could not get a fair trial in the state of Washington. What you shared with us, I, I think we're going to be able to play. It's a interesting, it's a interview, a clip from an interview with Myra So Happy. Um, it's titled A Legacy of Struggle to Preserve a Way of Life. And it's from the archives of Radio Zones and it's uh, put the, it has some music to the background of it as well. It's nicely um, uh, presented. So we're going to play that now um, and get your response. I've lived for 23 years. We moved there because our children was running around in the reservation, like all children get when they become teenagers. So we moved out, out of the reservation. We moved to the river. So we, we reside there now. We go fishing whenever we can. But the states 
of Oregon and states of Washington came in and they told us we weren't supposed to fish. My husband argued with them. They said, he said we had ratified treaty and everything was reserved by the Indians themselves. Nothing, the government never granted us anything. We reserved our tra traditional rights. We reserved the Columbia River and its tributaries where an Indian fish, we just gave the sportsmen a privilege to fish. They told us there was no more fish. We have to conserve. But it is not our right to conserve. It is the white man, non-Indian, that should conserve. Because they promised us they'd build hatcheries all along the Columbia River, and we didn't have to worry about anything. Now this promise is breaking. We have to get out of the river, and they are evicting us. And we hate to leave because in the treaty, whenever we abandoned our rivers, well, the non-Indians will move in. My husband is in penitentiary just for fishing and trading, the Indian way of life. We have, we have lived like this for a long time. In time immemorial, we have been trading and bartering with other countries. We went great distance to trade for the things we didn't have. We tra traveled long ways to trade with the other Indians. So Joshua, after listening to that, um, it's a really powerful uh, clip. And I wanted to ask you about the effect that prison had on David So Happy Sr. And uh, tell us a little bit about his life at that point. Yeah, so I should say that you mentioned this was Myra So Happy, and this was his wife. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you want to know about uh, David So Happy's life? How, it how what happened, I guess, after his the trial, going to prison, and his life after that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty tragic. So the, the they went on trial, they were convicted, and then there was another trial. It's really kind of convoluted process. There's another trial in tribal court, um, and this was a lot of what my paper is on. It's, it reads like a courtroom drama. I read mostly out of the paper. Um, but they eventually did go to prison, and after the after five men who, who did receive federal sentences went to prison. There was kind of a national and international movement to get them released, and especially David So Happy, his son, and Myra was central to that. Uh, Myra mentioned uh, several sen uh, senators got involved to get him pardoned, to get his uh, sentence um, shortened. Myra so happy reached out to other groups. She went to speak to the UN, um, uh, uh, the Human Rights Court. I think they made appeals to other international human rights organizations. David so happy was released, I think, in 88 or 89. Um, finally, uh, 
Senator uh, Daniel Inouye and um, I think Senator en Evans from Washington secured an early release after spending, I think, two or three years. But while he was in prison, he suffered a stroke and didn't receive adequate attention. Um, the prison idea of adequate medical attention was they moved his son into the cell with them. So Myra was very concerned about his health. One of the things that she talked about to the papers and in interviews was this focus on food, that they moved to the river to fish and live a traditional way of life, and they ate salmon, you know, that was their main meal two or three times a day in addition to uh, berries and other stuff that they had traded fish for. And then they got, and then he went to prison and got prison food and his health just deteriorated. And uh, I think he lived for about another year or so after he was finally released from prison. It's tragic ending. And thank you for sharing a uh, those details. I want to bring David into this conversation with you now, Joshua, and both of you kind of touch on this in your work and your writing and what you just discussed, but David, spe you specifically said that the, the, the dam really changed not only the physical landscape of the, of the region, but also reordered the social, cultural, and political landscape as well. I want you two to try to unpack that significance of the dam and hear your thoughts on how the dam is how the dam has really affected uh, the population in the last, I guess, now 60 years. Yeah. Well, I think, um, like, one of, the, one, of the, one of the common threads that I find between uh, Josh and my own work is that um, we really see um, indigenous fishermen really being active leaders. They not only know how to fish, but they know how we should fish, um, and they're constantly trying to get uh, the, the federal government and the state governments to realize that, you know, they've been doing this for 14,000 years. They might have a good idea of how, how to drive policy. Um, and so th that's, I think, one of, the, one of the interesting points of when this dam went in, a lot of people just assume that Indians wouldn't fish anymore um, and that the dam would be a convenient way of getting rid of uh, Indian treaty rights. And that was something Wilson Charlie was really concerned about. And so the, the treaty keeps coming up. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in Josh's work and in that clip of uh, Myra, you know, she's talking about the importance of that 1855 treaty. Mm -hmm. um, the treaty's a, a solemn obligation. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the thread, I think, that, you know, for, 100, for over 100 years, people, Indian people had been citing that treaty and going back to the United States and saying, no, we have a right to be here, we have something to say, and we know how to manage this resource. Yeah, and, you know, like David mentioned earlier, and Myra was also pointed out in that clip, just like, and repeated herself, we reserved, we reserved the right to fish. And so, and, and you see that in interviews with David Soapi, you see that in interviews with his children, um, the certain understanding of the treaties, which wasn't just an obligation on the part of the United States towards Native people, but they understood the treaties as being, themselves being obligated to uphold those treaties, that if 
they had left the river because of these dams and other things, uh, because of pressure from the states or the federal government or even the, the tribal government in this case. If they had left these places along the river, they would have been denying their treaty rights. If they had left the river, the governments would have come in and said, see, you know, you know, they are no longer fishing. These treaties no longer apply. So just their very presence along the river was forced governments to revisit the treaties. Even if they understood the treaties differently, this would always be a point of contention and always be a point of, of negotiation and conflict over this fishing. And more on the dams, too, David's so happy and was grew up in the plateau. He was a Wanapum, and he was a descendant of Smohala, who's a 19th century prophet of uh, the Washat religion, a, a plateau native religion. And he grew up near Priest Rapids, I think either named for Smohala or named for missionaries trying to convert people away from Smohala. But this was also damned and ironically named Priest Rapids Dam. And so he got pushed, you know, down the river. Mm -hmm. And then you had uh, dams being built on the lower river, mm -hmm. kind of constricting his movements. Mm -hmm. And yet, ironically, where he's, his family set up their, their home to live and fish was at one of these sites that was guaranteed by the Corps of Engineers from their construction of the, the Bonneville Dam. So it's one of these ironies that kind of 50 years after, after the construction of the dam, decisions made were still coming back to bite the, the, uh, the, the Corps of Engineers and the federal government. So I imagine you both have a similar answer to this this question. Um, do the communities in your respected areas of study, so so you know the Dales Dam region um, and uh, over by Cook's Landing, do those communities still exist today? I, I imagine that there's been quite an impact from these decades of changes, but you know I, I would say um, there's a thriving community at um, at Celilo Village, um, and if you go along the river, you'll find all these Inlu sites that Josh was talking about. Um, what's interesting is that they're still fighting to get the services and all the promises to those Inlu sites. You know, the Corps of Engineers, in their wisdom, tried to tell Indian people that they knew how to build a better drying shed. Um, and Roberta Ulrich, um, it's a great historian and author uh, on this subject, you know, talks about how the Corps would go in and build these new drying sheds and they were building them out of concrete slabs and it just would cause the fish to mold and rot. Mm -hmm. um, and so Indian people would take those drying sheds, move into them, and then go and construct their traditional open uh, drying sheds so they could dry the fish on, with those, that hot air from the Columbia Gorge. Mm -hmm. um, so you still see that today. And I point it out to people as I drive down the freeway, mm -hmm. although you know they're, hard, they're, they're, not tr they're not easy to access but they're there, and people haven't left. Yeah, yeah um, pick up on he's saying you know the, the same answer, dealing with the you know a lot of the same communities, and um, one thing that uh, 
in that clip of Myra so happy as she mentioned was at the same time the salmon scam trials were going on the Bureau of Indian Affairs attempted to evict families and, and communities living in these in sites claiming that they were never intended for year-round residents but uh, I think eventually you know the the native people living along there did win the fight to continue to to stay there I think in 1990 somewhere thereabouts um, so there were multiple fights going on at the same time and and the the fight to to stay along the river you know they did win win that mm-hmm. So I want to maybe address the, the evolution of resistance to these uh, encroachments by the federal government. How have um, in the 1950s, David, um, you described um, kind of an, an appeal to politicians and an effort to try to build coalition. Mm-hmm. Where has that gone? Uh, how does that compare to what you saw in the 80s in regards to, or Joshua, what you saw in the 80s to do the same kind of encroachments on the reserved rights? Uh, how? Maybe can you two just describe what you've seen in the evolution of tactics? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, you know, looking at Wilson Charlie, he learned from his father, who had a big, a, a big role in resisting the Bonneville Dam, mm-hmm. and so I, I think a lot of these things, a lot of these stories become inter, you know, generational kind of sagas, and so he had learned how you know how to lead and how to resist the encroachments to fishing rights from from his father. And in the early 19th century, a lot of, you know, a lot of these, this resistance was led by individuals. Um, and then they were able to get court cases. Um, so you really see that tradition kind of move throughout. The, the one thing that made Wilson Charlie different was that as the dam was coming in, he wanted to shift the authority to regulate the fishery, which had traditionally, like I said earlier, was, was controlled by individual families. So if you owned a fishing platform, someone would have to get permission from you to fish there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would follow, you know, the directions and the customs of the kind of local chieftain. Um, but these sites were very much controlled and regulated very, very, very locally. As tribal governments come about and those those politics get reorganized and you start seeing, act, you know, Wilson Charlie suggesting that the tribe should have its own fisheries bureau, its own uh, law enforcement bureau. So these, this authority to uh, regulate the fishery becomes a tribal thing, and it formerly was an individual thing. Um, and that's really where I see, you know, David So Happy and Wilson Charlie, they, they kind of, there's some tension between them uh, because Charlie wants, uh, you know, tribal authority, and David So Happy's uh, maybe a little more conservative and wants it back to the individual way. Yeah, um, and that is kind of where, you know, I, I kind of understand what I'm writing about as, as being, you know, picking up where uh, David's scholarship leaves off as just different eras. And I understand this salmon scam business as really kind of, the governments, state and federal, trying to to just sort of push these things, kind of push towards a tribal regulation of fishing in the same manner as state and federal, just to get everything in line. And I understand this poaching investigation as a means of 
trying to force that before Native people could figure out how this would work amongst themselves. Right now, kind of in the 80s, there was everything that the relationships that the tribes have today with the states and federal government was kind of built in the 1980s while these trials, David Soapi and others, were going on. And a lot of that is handled through, it's called the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. And this commission kind of considers itself and, and as a continuation of the Salilo Fish Committee. But this commission had only been formed in 1977. This was only a few years after the Bolt decision came down, and not even before the Supreme Court finally upheld it as the law of the land. And so too too late to have any input on this five-year compact between the tribes and the state and federal governments over fishing rights, over fishing seasons that were really restrictive. And it's in these restrictive fishing seasons that people at Cook's Landing and elsewhere got caught up in Mm. and were resisting. This is something I need to look at more, but it's it's as if they came in before the, the, the ink was dry on some of these agreements and they weren't able to work out some of the agreements that are in place now at the time. And it took this, like, heavy-handed, you know, oppression of uh, people at Cook's Landing and David Soapi and the others to sort of, I guess, invigorate uh, tribal activism on the individual, community, and governmental level. Thank you. Unfortunately, that is just about all the time that we have. Thank you both for coming in and sharing the research that you two are working on. I'm looking forward to reading the theses that you two develop, and maybe we can have you back on here to uh, talk about the process a little bit more of what you did. Um, So thank you, David Hedberg, Joshua Ross. Thanks for letting us be here. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded at KPSU's studio. Music in this episode is from Dennis Taylor, Willie Thrasher, and Lowe. We wanted to take a moment to thank our listeners who tuned in today and those who listened in the fall 2015 season. Your support is so greatly appreciated. And if you want to help us out even more, please tell your friends about an episode that you liked in particular or just let them know about the show. Uh, we get a lot of a lot of uh, listeners from word of mouth, so that's always appreciated. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can hear older episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting either soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes, finding us on kpsu.org, or heading to pdx.edu slash history. Signing off, Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Thanks for listening.
that is living today. 